Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to history. If I can be honest for a second, I'm actually very nervous about this rumination. I've been dreading this one for a while. This is a very big episode with a lot of pedigree and is arguably one of the most centric episodes of all of Star Trek, but most definitely is the most centric episode of TNG. So for those of you who are joining us for the first time, welcome. My name is Lil Runner. I do ruminations on episodes of Star Trek. I've been doing this for about seven years now, give or take, at this point in time. And hopefully doing this for several more years. I say that because I have a weird feeling that some people will be poking their heads in for the first time on this one. Because, well, <clears throat> historically that's exactly what happened with this episode. Put, let's put this into perspective a little bit. Star Trek had a bit of an upswing in normal popularity, media presentation, and reaching out to people who otherwise weren't Trekkers or Trekkies or weren't even sci-fi fans were brought on board by the movie Voyage Home, Star Trek IV. That really branched Star Trek out and made a lot of money, which allowed Star Trek to start doing things it hadn't been able to do. And I've, I've covered all that before. But I mentioned that because now Star Trek was a lot more broadly known. But when I say Star Trek, I'm of course referring to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and, and that crew, right? TNG certainly had its own following, especially in science fiction circles. As I've mentioned before, Season 3 was seeing some very good ratings, although Season 4 would actually see the best ratings overall, uh, of historically speaking, of Star Trek Season 4 and leading into Season 5, to be more specific. But at this point in history, there was a lot of attention on Star Trek in general from people who didn't know what Star Trek was, people who weren't really watching it every day, people who weren't really sci-fi fans, people who didn't you know, grow up with it or had, didn't have their parents grow up with it like I did or whatever. This is also when Star Trek VI was already well into production at, this, at the point when they were making this episode. By the time this episode came out, Star Trek VI was well into production. Sorry, I spoke in misspoke. It started production, and when the episode came out, it was well into production. And uh, they had it started trying to figure out their budgeting issues and there are all sorts of issues of that. And though nobody ever says it, I've always privately believed that the significant success of Best of Both Worlds, especially Part One, was at least in part helping the whole situation with Star Trek VI. For those of you not aware, in brief, Star Trek VI was... Let's just say they pulled back on the budget a lot. And it almost didn't even get made. And they had this whole idea about the Academy and blah, blah, blah. I've talked about that in a different rumination. Anyways, keeping in mind a few details as well, though, because a lot of factors really built into this one. So we've got a lot of public attention. We've got the fact that the show had really started to find itself in many significant ways, and frankly, season three was pretty great, with only a few exceptions. We also have a situation where anybody who was following it knew that Patrick Stewart was just unhappy. And he was quite vocal about that. There are interviews. There's, you remember TV Guide? Anyone remember that? TV Guide had several spreads on Patrick Stewart stating how he was thinking about bowing out. Now... It turns out whether that was true or not is a lot more debatable. Since then, Patrick Stewart has gone on record saying he never seriously considered canceling his contract. But at the time, the rumor mill was just buzzing about the idea that Patrick Stewart was going to bow out of Star Trek. In an episode where he just got assimilated by the Borg, and yeah, you kind of see where this is going. And so for the gap in between the episodes, the, the, the rumor mill was going wild as much as it could back in 1990, uh, circling around the idea that Riker was going to take over as captain, Shelby was going to be the new first officer, and Picard was going to frickin' die. This is also uh, worth noting that for the people who were really paying attention, 
who were really cognizant of Star Trek or were actually really following the show, they knew that there was a lot of behind-the-scenes issues, which I've actually mentioned several times before. Season 3, for all the amazing stuff it presented, had a lot of people bowing out. Many of the creative staff who had really helped to make Star Trek as you know great, TNG great in particular, had finally bowed out and would not actually come back for some time, or in some cases would never actually come back. Interestingly enough, and before I tar- start talking about the episode proper, I just want to mention one other quick thing. As this episode was going live, they had started work on season four, because that's how television works. I mean, do you think I'm recording this on... You know, I have no idea off the top of my head when this episode goes live. Hang on. Hang on, let me pull up my calendar really quick. Uh, this is going to be... Looks like March. Do you think I'm recording this in March? No, 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 no. In television, you record everything in advance, as far in advance as you are capable of doing. Now, obviously, reality is going to get in the way of that kind of preface thing, but that's what you do, and you do that for, for a reason. There's, there's dozens and dozens of reasons to do it. So they were already working on season four when Best of Both Worlds Part 1 hit, and it exploded. Virtually every media coverage was covering it. All, all, the, all the talk shows, all the magazines, there were interviews all over the place. It was, it was actually kind of astonishing how many people were discussing the best of both worlds. And I'm actually looking at some notes here on the side here. There's actually showcasing from uh, Ronald D. Moore and Brennan Braga in particular. Now, Braga actually came on to Star Trek right about at this point in history. He, he was brought into uh, Star Trek to start working on season four. So for anybody who hates Brennan Braga, this is when that began. And for anybody who has a more complicated opinion of Brennan Braga, like me, this is when he started becoming a part of Star Trek. As I mentioned earlier, this is also when Ronald D. Moore really started to become more of a name when it comes to TNG. Ira Stephen Bear had bowed out for a bit. He'd be back later. We lost Snodgrass, which was a shame. She was an excellent writer. But anyways, I'm getting off point. Um, This is also when uh, Rick Berman and Michael Piller really started rising to prominence for both good and bad. But I'll discuss more of that in Season 4. Anyways, so this hit, and everyone was just like, whoa, this this is really catching a lot of attention. It was a cliffhanger. Star Trek had never done that. Some people tend to forget that. The Best of Both Worlds is the first cliffhanger in Star Trek history. It could be argued to be one of the only cliffhangers in Star Trek history, because most Star Trek episodes, even ones that are two-parters, usually don't end on a cliffhanger, dun-dun-dun, to-be-continued kind of a note. They usually just end in a way that is to-be-continued. Now, Voyager obviously had several of varying impact. But this was still new when this happened. This was the first. This was also one of the first really significant two-parters in Star Trek history. Not the first, that'd be the Menagerie, obviously. But this was still one of the first. And so still something that was relatively new to Star Trek as an aggregate, never mind TNG. And the final note I want to say is that everything just kind of came together for this episode. Michael Piller was very seriously considering bowing out of Star Trek at this point in time. He'd kind of bumbled into TNG, as I've actually already discussed and will not repeat myself here. And while he had basically just kind of had the reins of being the showrunner thrust upon him, he actually really enjoyed doing it. He found himself comfortable in his niche, but at the same time he wondered, is this a good thing? Should I leave and go do my own thing rather than working on what is effectively someone else's show? Now, if that sounds familiar, that sounds a lot like what Riker's going through in this episode. In fact, Pillar himself has gone on record multiple times, had gone on record, as saying that this was 
like basically a lot of what Riker was saying in episode was Pillar voicing his own concerns and thoughts about being a part of Star Trek The Next Generation. Now, I have my own complaints and concerns about Pillar. <laughs> Star Trek Nine comes to mind immediately. But one thing I will always give the man, 100% of the time, is the fact that the man had a real, legitimate passion for Star Trek. He really liked television, and he really liked Star Trek in particular. This was not something that he approached like it was a job. This is something he approached like it was work, to use my own terminology. Something that mattered, something he cared about. And you could tell the man really threw himself into this episode. This episode was actually written by Michael Piller. And it shows in many ways, because Pillar is always all about the character stuff. You'll notice that there's very little action. In fact, there are two action scenes in the entire episode. One briefly, which... Um, oh, where is it? Where is it? It's at 18 minutes and 19 seconds, up to about the 20-minute mark, give or take. I didn't write down the seconds. And then there's another action sequence later on as they're trying to escape from uh, the, the, the crew, right when they notice that Picard is over there, when they're trying to rescue him. That's it. Two action scenes in the whole thing. There's a lot of tech, but no technobabble. Everything they say about the tech is, again, logical and makes sense. And the episode focuses almost entirely on Riker and his dynamic with those around him. And yet, despite the fact that this is a Riker episode, because it is, this is a Riker episode. In fact, arguably, this is the Riker episode. But despite this fact... It's not like anyone gets shunted off to the side. We still get to have bits with Wesley. We still get to have bits with Worf, and he gets some significant moments as well. Jordy gets to showcase his personality. Crusher even gets to have some screen time. Basically, everyone is brought into this in some significant or well-designed way or another. It's a character piece. It's I know this is going to sound weird, but it's kind of like the zombie apocalypse. Now, I know a lot of people say that the Borg are basically you know, Star Trek zombies. And I've never agreed with that, for the record. Let's just go ahead and get that out of the way. But what I mean by that is, I have always said that the least interesting thing about any zombie apocalypse are the zombies. That's not the fun part. That's not the interesting part. That's just the premise. The interesting part is the people. How they react, why they react, what they're doing, the significances, the nuances, the depths that they're willing to sink to, or the adherences that they have to their own principles, or how those principles change, or how lines shift, or the desperation, or the fear, or the determination, or the hope, or whatever. The people have always been the only things that have made me, personally, interested in zombie stories. And I know I'm not the only person who thinks that. And that's this episode in a nutshell. The Borg are a backdrop, which makes sense, because I want you to picture... Narratively speaking, the way the Borg are used in this episode is one of the two ways I would have used the Borg long-term. I'll talk more about that later. I, the Borg are... Imagine if you're watching a play and all of this action's happening here on stage, but in the back of the play you see a wall. And this wall is just inching its way forward. Eventually, everyone on the stage knows it will shove them off the stage and into spikes or whatever, and they'll die. And there's nothing they can do about it. And that's the point. The Borg are just this ever-encroaching wall that just provides this overwhelming, thematic, emotional undercurrent of dread throughout the entire episode. Because it's not just that they're the Borg and they've got a bigger Doomrier ship. It's that we're not even sure we can do anything about them and we're completely unprepared for them. Shelby even mentions that they're still working on weapons and projects that aren't going to be finished for years 
by the way, that actually was one of the things that led to the eventual creation of the Defiant. Obviously, in-universe, they were working on the Defiant at this point in time. But out of universe, the idea of the Defiant in many ways came from this episode, and they're talking about, we are making these new ships and blah, blah, blah. Anyways. I suppose I should start talking about the episode proper. The episode starts, and the very first thing is, Ron Jones is amazing. Now, I have praised Ron Jones' music many times. Booby Trap is actually probably one of my favorite episodes for score when it comes to Ron Jones' music. But this episode is the one everyone remembers, probably at least in part because it actually got its own CD released just for the music from this episode. But also, and it's featured on a lot of other CDs as well in music collections for Star Trek in general and Ron Jones in particular. But in addendum to that, the other reason I bring this up is because in this episode, the music always is perfect for the moment. There are scenes where the music is quiet, and there are scenes where the music is loud. This is also when they use, start using choir. I'll talk more about that later. But I mention that because for all of the varying presentations of different pace and tempo, different, uh, different general uh, instruments they're using, the tone of the music never really shifts in the entire episode. It is always quiet and terrified that dread thing I was talking about. And I firmly believe that this episode was absent the music or had, let's call it what it is, generic wallpaper music that they started using in later Star Trek. This episode would not have had quite as much of an impact as it does. Still a good episode, but it just, it just wouldn't have been as good. So this teaser is very efficient. It's one minute and 21 seconds long. Just bam. Now, I've actually talked before about the nature of of the, the, the cold open and the stingers and the teasers that Star Trek uses in general uh, and that television... Sorry, Star Trek uses in specific and television uses in general. The whole idea is bring you in, get your attention, keep you there in front of the TV. But some of the best teasers are the ones that are designed for multiple audiences. For someone who's never seen Star Trek before, what they are seeing here is these people beaming down to something that's supposed to be the center of town and there's just this huge crater. So even someone who knows nothing about Star Trek is like, whoa, and can infer a lot of the significance. But for anybody who does know Star Trek, we've seen this before, twice. Neutral zone, cue who. And you'll notice that right after the teaser, they immediately start talking about the Borg. They're not quiet about it. They don't try to lead up to a mystery. Flat out, we think this is the Borg. We're going to research it for more, but we think this is the Borg, and we, we know they're coming, and we're treating this exactly as seriously as we should. Credit to Pillar's writing. Credit to Cliff Bowles' directing. Credit to the actors. Everyone treats this exactly as serious as it should, and that's the first thing I want to talk about. One of the things I like least or dislike the most, or hate the most, or however you want to phrase that, about the entire idea of the threat of the week is the fact that, ignoring the fact that it doesn't matter, and it's, it's conflicting and contrasting with the very idea of good setting building, it also deflates the meaning when you do have a significant threat. If you think about it for a moment, if you really pull yourself out of it, it's actually more difficult to really care about the Borg as a threat when we've got so many other random aliens that we've encountered here and there that are super doomy thready, right? Remember the I forget their namians from the Transfigurations? Hang on, let me just flip back one page because I just did that episode. The Zalconians, right? Like the Zalconians were an overwhelming threat that the Enterprise could do nothing about. 
I'll never hear from them again. Like, that kind of stuff just takes away from the significance of the Borg. It only really has significance if you basically mentally headcanon away most of the threat of the weak species. I mention that because the Borg themselves were very nearly a threat of the weak species. Now, that was never intended. They were never intended to be a threat of the weak. As I've talked about before, the Borg were supposed to be an entire season-long story arc across season two. That got torpedoed. But then Q-Who came forward and brought them back. So that's their second actual overall presentation, first real appearance in the show. And the Borg caught everyone's attention. Not just the audience, but the writers and the creators as well. They were all very impressed with the concept and the ideas. They really wanted to bring the Borg back. And in fact, Michael Pillar himself has said many times that he was constantly struggling with some way to bring the Borg into Season 3. He wanted to do it. In fact, it's actually probably a good thing that he failed for so long because as a consequence, we got best of both worlds. Oh, this is, another, this is a good time to bring that up, by the way. I've mentioned before, Paramount was not doing great financially, and Season 3 had basically run out of budget. However, when they were positing this idea, they said, why don't we make it a two-parter and make it a cliffhanger? Now, I know I already mentioned that a cliffhanger had never been done before, but Paramount liked that so much, they were willing to stretch the budget out and effectively give them some of what would have been the Season 4 budget into Season 3 to really help them make this as big a thing as possible. I've talked before about the very nature of television budgeting and how any given two-parter will actually be less expensive to make than two separate individual episodes. So this was kind of the beginning of that becoming what would eventually be norm when it comes to Star Trek television and production. So, (laughs) I'm sorry, I got so much to unpack. You notice I've barely talked about the episode. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to this one, so please bear with me, guys. I'm probably going to gush a little. But I'm also not going to hesitate on criticism. My whole approach is always to be honest. And my first criticism is, how did nobody notice the giant scooping of the city out from orbit? Like, they beam down as, like, you should be in the center of town. And yet, they're just, huh? Did nobody scan it from orbit? Did nobody look, look physically, look down and see the crater? Did the transporter chief not double-check his, his coordinates? I mean, I get the point. The point is to give them the shock of, oh my god, it's gone, in person, and to show off that wonderful matte painting, very well drawn, don't mistake me. But it is a little ridiculous, isn't it? So then they start talking about, you know, this is the Borg, they're back, and blah, blah, blah. Um, What I find interesting is they spend this time basically doing quick and dirty exposition, just on the off chance that anybody had never actually watched Q-Who, or the neutral zone, or had forgotten about it. Normally I'm against this, but in this unique case, this actually worked out very well. I'm going to give you another side story here really quick. Did you know that Brennan Braga, the first episode of TNG he'd ever seen, was this one? This was the episode that that he first saw as he was really, like, getting into Star Trek, and he was like, oh. And he was not the first one. Excuse me, he was not the only one. There were many, many people who Best of Both Worlds, Part 1, was their first real exposure to TNG or to Star Trek in general. And having this kind of exposition right up front, and it's all quick and dirty. It's just bam, 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 and then it moves on. It's very well written. It's not good exposition, but it's well written, not good exposition. I know that sounds like a strange way to put that. But it's as well as it could possibly be for basically trying to info dump everything that the audience needs to know quickly and dirty. It's also worth noting 
that the actors help sell this. Even someone who has no idea who or what the Borg is can tell this is a serious threat. Why? Because the way they act. Again, that dread thing. There is a constant palpable sense of how are we going to deal with this? We can't deal with this. We can't process this. We can't approach this. Blah, blah, blah. This right here, if you'll forgive me for segueing again for just a second, is the power of continuity and the power of not doing the threat of the week. You have established a threat. Now you can pay off that threat and make it significant and make it matter. If Q who never existed, if Neutral Zone never existed, this episode would still be good, but it would lose so much of that impact and power because all of a sudden there's this race we've never heard of before that's showing up out of nowhere and we're supposed to consider a threat. I can say that with definitive certainty because there is an episode of Star Trek that did exactly that, the Day of the Dove over in TOS. That was the episode where the Klingons were invented and presented as if they've always been around, and that they've always been in a near-war situation with these people we've never heard of before. Now, I know that sounds weird to say that from the modern perspective, because Klingons are one of the most common Star Trek races, right up there with Vulcans. But back in the day, Klingons were invented for one episode, and they were so popular they kept being brought back. So it's not like that can't work, but again, picture if instead, in TOS, the Klingons had been established beforehand. Previous Klingon episodes had happened, or established the level of their threat, or established the nature of their culture. Then building up to Day of the Dove, there would have been more impact. Now, that may or may not be a good thing for you personally. I know that personal preference and individual perspective is a thing in real life, and it's an awesome thing. But I do feel, I could say with definitive certainty, that it would have at least had more power behind it had they done so. And again, I can point to an example of that the very episode I'm talking about. After the quick and dirty exposition, we're like five minutes of the episode, after the quick and dirty exposition, they immediately shift to poker night. This not only helps to keep things on the down low, but also helps to add little moments of breathing room. I mentioned that dread. I want you to picture a vice that's just grabbing you and squeezing you. I'm sure some of you understand this feeling, not physically, of course, but you know, anxiety or, or depression or other emotional concerns. Lord knows I have issues with those too, so I'm not trying to toss any shade here. Now imagine that that's the whole episode is just squeezing you. It would get dull, right? It would get to the point where it just kind of grates on you. So the episode, take, t episode takes a moment to release the vice every now and again, like with the poker scene. But every time it releases the vice, it does so in service of character. I'll talk more about that in just a second. First, I want to talk about the idea that Riker has been offered the captain's share for the third time, the Melbourne. Um, I don't even remember what kind of ship that is off the top of my head. I want to say it's an Excelsior class, but anyways. Admiral Hansen? Oh, God, I can't think of his name. He's actually kind of a minor per uh, presence in this one. I'm pretty sure it's Admiral Hansen, as opposed to Shelby, who is a far more regular presence in this episode checking here. Yeah, Hanson. I am right. I am right. I got George Murdoch for it. Um, Admiral Hanson mentions how Riker's hurting his career. I found that to be an interesting statement, and I want to take a quick moment to talk about the very idea of career in Star Trek. Now, I've talked about this before, and some people have liked this and some people have disliked this. I've actually gotten feedback about this very topic before. The idea of ambition. 
Now, I actually like the idea of ambition because I like the idea that everybody has at least one thing that they really want to pursue as a career, something that really matters to them, something that is significant to them, and they want to go further with it. But I'm also a firm believer in two other concepts, of having made it and of retiring. In other words, ambition is not infinite. At a certain point, you, you did it. Yeah, I'm here, right? And then at a certain point, you're, you're satisfied with what you've done and you go ahead and settle for the rest of your life. I'm very big on all three concepts, and I do believe those things exist in real life, even though real-life economics and reality don't quite allow that for the overwhelming majority of people. So the idea that Riker's career is hurting by this makes me confused a little bit. And indeed, ironically, this is one of the main predominant points of Riker's journey, that he doesn't need the captain's chair that he doesn't actually need to go up any further, that he is actually quite satisfied where, with where he is. Troy herself has a wonderful scene with him about this, where she says, you're happy. You're happier than I've ever known you to be. So what is it you want, Will Riker? And again, Michael Piller was having the exact same thoughts. He wanted to do his own things. He wanted to try his own ambitions, but he really liked being here. And he was doing some good stuff here, too. So, Shelby. I want to talk about Shelby really quick. First of all, she was played by Elizabeth Dennehy. Unfortunately, I don't really know her from much other works. I've seen a few other things she's in. But I want to just say that she nails Commander Shelby. I'm one of those people who actually would have really liked it if we did, in fact, have Shelby as a regular character rather than this one-off. She's mentioned a few times in the future, but that's it. She is an excellent presentation. She is a very sure of herself without being arrogant. She's very confident without being overbearing. She does have a little bit too much drive, and I'll talk about that as we go throughout the episode, because she likes to step on people's toes more or less deliberately. She's provocative, in other words. But I really like the fact that at no point in time does she tip over the line into actually being irritating. Now, personal preference is personal preference. I'm sure some of you out there actually found Shelby to be an irritating character. I, I don't know anyone personally who's thought that, but as ever, I welcome your guys' thoughts in the comments section because I read those every day. It's awesome. And I like the fact that she is a good fit for someone to be a first officer, someone who is young towards the beginning of her career but has skyrocketed through the ranks. She's already a lieutenant commander at her age. She's like 22 or something like that in, in canon. Very, very young. And someone who very much wants to keep pushing forward. Someone who probably would want to keep pushing forward past the commander chair, for example. But she sees the idea of being commander on the Enterprise as the gleaming star on her resume to help her continue catapulting forward. And of course she does. Any posting on the Enterprise would be, a, would be resume gold, right? Especially when it comes to Star, uh, Starfleet, especially in the wake of Wolf 359, which is actually next episode, so we're going to save most of that discussion for next week. I did decide to split this up into two because there's just so much to unpack, and I'll talk more about that next week. Early on. So Shelby, she takes charge, just like that. She does act in every way like a commander, and I do like that. And she's not quite abrasive. <laughs> I mean, she literally beats Riker at his own game. She beats Riker at poker. I found that very amusing. Quick aside, anyone else really enjoy the sound of poker chips? It's one of the things I miss most about playing poker with my friends. Anyways. This is a good time to talk about politics. Hear me out. One of the interesting things is that Shelby never actually breaks protocol. Or, I'm saying that wrong. She never does anything technically wrong. Everything she does makes sense. Everything she does has a reason, an explanation for it. 
Everything she does is specifically designed to try and accomplish a goal. She's not trying to make people upset. She's not trying to, uh, you know, go against the rules. Everything she has done, she has done for reason and purpose. But she has, like I said, she's provocative. It's kind of the trolling thing, actually, where you're not technically doing anything wrong, but you are violating the spirit of the law, that, that concept. And she violates protocol constantly. Let me give you a very small example of what I mean. Shelby decides to go down on the planet with Data. Data was up and available, and she wanted to get a start on this because of the storm coming in. All of that's valid. But no one else was notified, to the point where Riker didn't even know that they were going down. Obviously, O'Brien did, because he beamed them down an hour ago, but that's it. Now, this is Star Trek. I mean, we could make this happen in real life. How hard would it be to be Shelby to Commander Riker? There's a storm coming in, and I think it's going to be a problem very soon. I'm going to go ahead and recommend we go down now rather than later. If that's okay with you, I can take Commander Data right now while you and uh, Jordy, Mr. Commander LaForge, get ready. That would have taken seconds, less than a minute to do, especially for Star Trek, but she doesn't bother. That's what I mean about her approach. She violates protocol because, well, or more accurately, she doesn't violate protocol, but she does violate the spirit of that protocol, basically more or less deliberately trying to push Riker out of her way. And it's worth noting that the only person she really butts heads with consistently is Riker. Not because he's a guy, not because she's a girl. In fact, actually, one of the things I like most about Shelby is her gender is totally irrelevant to her character. What I do like most about her character is that she is obviously a opponent to Riker. She, she even says it flat out, you're in my way. And I kind of like that. It's a good way to keep him on his toes and challenge him. It's a good way to exposit on him. And it makes her an interesting character. Anywho. So, then we have another brief rush of, of competency, which is so nice to see in Starfleet. So rare, especially at this point in history. Standing yellow alert, all outposts notified, all scanners always on. Very simple, very brief. Bam, bam, bam. We are constantly rolling notice rolls or, or awareness checks or whatever you want to call it to make sure that we are on eyes open for any Borg sightings. And then it immediately shifts to Picard asking Riker to consider it, to reconsider the Melbourne. Now what I like most about that is Picard himself... So there's a bit in The Icarus Factor, I want to say. Yeah, I think it was the Icarus Factor. And as I mentioned, I really didn't like the Icarus Factor. I felt that it fell flat in so many different ways. But one of the things I liked was the way Picard approached the idea of taking another command to Riker. What I find interesting about that, though, is even though they have a much briefer scene, which arguably is less well-written, this scene comes across as far more impacting. Picard feels like someone reaching out to a friend, saying, I'm concerned for you and what you really want for the future. I'm not saying you're doing wrong. I want you to consider what is wrong and right in this situation. And then Riker immediately goes to the one person he knows best and can trust most, Troy. And once again, there is just wonderful chemistry between Marina Sirtis and Jonathan Frakes. It really is no wonder there was so much shipping about them back in the day, because the, the characters, excuse me, the actors have wonderful dynamic with each other. So he talks about he talks to Troy about it, and the best part is. As he's talking his way around the problem, Troy flat out admits, I'm not even sure what that means. I don't even know what the issue here is. Riker, you are, she says will, of course, you are so much better than you used to be in so many different ways. Speaking from an outside perspective, you have gained more than you know. You have seasoned. 
And while he takes that as a mild insult, it is meant with total sincerity as a huge compliment. I mean, what's better, rare meat or seasoned steak? I mean, come on, you know, this is an easy analogy here. But more to the point, she flat out admits, what is it you want, Will Riker? Because what I love most about this entire story arc for Riker, and again, the one that Pillar himself was going through in real life, is not that it's just about taking risks versus safety, although that's a recurrent theme. And it's not about how he's given up or he's settled. It's more like he's made it. Like I said earlier, there's ambition, there's making it, there's retirement. And in many ways, Riker feels like he's made it, that he has reached a point where he is happy, content, that his ambition has been fulfilled. He is doing a job he knows and he loves. If I can skip forward a little bit here, there's a scene after Picard has been taken by the Borg, and Riker Bam! Order! Bam! Order! Bam! Order! Let's do this! Go! And he is extremely on top of his game. Very efficient, very very confident, very competent. And everything that he is exuding is that he is he knows exactly what he's doing, and he does. He is damned good at being the commander, the first officer, the guy who leads those missions. It is then Troy who has to step in and be like, No, you're not the commander anymore. You're the captain. And it's a very powerful scene for its understated tones. Because, again, it's not that Riker was wrong. He was right. Everything he said was right, and his orders were right, and he, had the, he was making the right call, except for the fact that he was making the right call for a job he wasn't in anymore. That job that he had, you know, made it to, that his, his ambition fulfilled. Now he was being shoved into a job he didn't really know. He was being shoved into a job that he wasn't comfortable with, and to be perfectly frank, that he didn't choose. And now he has to cope with that. Him coping with that is going to be a major theme of part two, which we'll get to next week. So, um, there's a scene where we cut to Wesley, Data, Geordi, Riker, and Shelby in engineering, basically shop-talking their way around their, their, their possible options. By this point, they have definitively proven that this is the Borg. Um, there's a lot of good, quick and dirty exposition in this. And it's funny because I kind of didn't notice that my first and second and fifth time watching this episode. But a lot of the dialogue in that scene is basically there to remind people or inform people of the capabilities of the Borg for people who don't remember or never saw Q-Who. So they kind of run through, you know, the, the Borg shtick. You know, the repairability, the redundancy, all that fun stuff. And they also... Uh, kind of covered the topic of crunch, which I know is a weird thing to, to bring up. But I mention that because Shelby insists that they, they, they need to keep working. And, I'll, I'll, and then they, Riker says, no, we need to take a nap. And Shelby then volunteers to keep working with Data. And then Riker once again shuts her down. She says, if the Borg show up, we need to be as ready as possible. And he says, if the Borg show up, we need to be as rested as possible. What I find most interesting about this dialogue and, and discourse between the two is that they're both right. They both actually have a very valid point. She is right in that they need to do as much prep time as possible, and he is right in the fact that if they are fighting fatigue, well, the human body just kind of stops working properly the more fatigued you get. The human mind, I should say, as well. But you get my point. Humans, people, stop working properly at certain levels of fatigue. To quote Battlestar Galactica, we make mistakes, people die. So... 
they're both entirely have a valid point. And I love that because, well, that's part of why so many people wanted Riker to take the command chair and Shelby to take the command officer position. Because the two characters bounce off each other wonderfully. They have great chemistry. The actors and actors, the, Jonathan Frakes and uh, Elizabeth Dennehy have great chemistry together. And the characters form a complete, like they challenge each other. And they're both, and again, they're both right. And thus they can work to, to make a better unified team between the two of them. Right? And, uh, if I could just rewrite TNG a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and by a little bit, I mean a lot. I mean, I love TNG, but every now and again, it just kind of drives me bonkers how much they could have done and didn't. Anywho. So. <clears throat> then. Well, then the music starts. This is when the music really starts to kick it into overdrive. There's a very low, almost crying series of strings in the background. At 1900 hours, we this ship left. At 1900 hours and 12 minutes, we received a distress call. They re they mentioned seeing a cube-shaped ship. The distress call was abruptly cut off, and we have not heard from them since. This is kind of the Jaws mentality here in its own way. We know what that means. The episode itself, in its own self, has fully established what that means and the severity of it. If you're aware of Star Trek as an aggregate, or we're watching Star Trek up to this point in time, it's even more terrifying, because now we know with total certainty there's a cube, it's nearby. Then they go out at warp 9. Now, I only point this out because as much as I have complained about their usage and misusage of warp throughout the course of TNG, it is worth noting that it has been a consistent thing that they rarely go above warp 6 in almost every episode. Even when it's an issue of, of severity or time, they usually go up to warp 8. They very rarely go to warp 9. And they even mention why in this episode. Keeping up with the Borg is literally draining the Enterprise's capacity to function. So they're literally burning out the Enterprise just trying to keep up with the cube. So again, it's a very quiet touch, but the intercept course, warp 9, go. There's a significance to that. This is the no-really moment. There's no time or place to hold back. And then they... T so one of the things I really like is they're talking about what they could do here and maybe their options for uh, you know, re rearranging uh, the, the energy distribution or trying to, to power this kind of a thing. Or maybe we can do a full spread of whatever with the torpedoes. We, we feel like there's at least something we can work with on here based on our previous data. What's our best shot, Jordy? It's a shot in the dark. These people, in general, have had a year to prep for this. And this is some of the best people who not only have personal anti-Borg experience, but also are people who've been studying the Borg problem for the last year, with regards to Shelby. These people's best option is a shot in the dark. Once again, emphasizing the significance of the wall that is encroaching. And then they go out, and Picard is just pacing on the bridge. Now, Patrick, this is, Patrick Stewart actually gets very little presence in this episode, which actually helped to add credence to the idea that Picard was going to be leaving the show back when this was happening. Again, there was never any real intention of that, as I've mentioned before, and we'll talk more about that next week. But you could kind of see he's just pacing there, and he's, he's concerned, and there's this low strings. And then at 18 minutes and 14 seconds, we finally see the Borg. That's the first time they enter into the episode. 
and the choir starts up. Now, there's been a, a lot of different types of music across Star Trek, but using this kind of Gregorian chanting choir was very new to Star Trek and kind of hasn't been done since for the most part. So once again, something is being done new and different, which long-term fans can recognize as a, oh, this is, this is significant kind of a moment. So the Borgs show up, and they give their hail. They ask if it's the same ship. They're not sure, even though it's the exact same configuration. I, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind, though. The episode flat out admits this might be the same ship, which is significant for a couple reasons we'll talk about later. We are taking this. Submit. This is logical. That is what the Borg says. Now, a lot of the, the standard Borg elements were introduced in this episode. Uh, you know, resistance is futile. The very concept of assimilation. We see that with Locutus, of course. And the idea of being interested in humanoids. In fact, Shelby actually has a line, I thought they only cared about her technology. And apparently their perspectives have changed. That line was specifically designed to try and ex uh, explain why it is that they might be interested in people in addition to tech. That was later retconned completely out of existence to the point where the Borg always were assimilating. Make of that what you will. Then they fire all weapons. Now, I mention that because... I pointed out back in the episode, uh, oh gosh, I can't think of the name of it all of a sudden. It's not Who Watches the Watchers, it's, uh... oh my god, I can't think of the name of the episode. It's one of the Husnock ship, right? It's it's the Twilight Zone episode. I can't think of the name of it. Uh oh, that's going to bother me. Hang on. No, no, no. I'm not going to let you tell me it, guys. I know you're all going to be rushing to your comment sections to correct me. It's the Survivors. There it goes. The Survivors. Right before Who Watches the Watchers. Um, in the episode Survivors, I pointed out the significance of the full fire spread and how they, they did all of this and managed to, to cause significant injury, or rather, a total lack of significant injury to the Husnock ship. But I pointed out how significant that was to use those kind of effects to help establish what you know, Star Trek could do and what the Enterprise could do. They fire all weapons in this episode, too. They don't do jack. They don't even scratch the cube. No damage, no change in anything. It's only when Shelby has the idea to try and do a specific modulation, specifically tar targeting the tractor array, that they get anywhere. During the course of this brief encounter, this is the first of those two action scenes I mentioned, 11 people die off in the background. Now, what I like about this is, for one of the only times in history, I actually felt those deaths. Unlike... <laughs> Unlike the typical red shirt problem, which, as I've talked to before, is a typical red shirt problem, those 11 deaths felt like a natural consequence rather than something needing to show that the situation was serious. Because, of course, 11 people just died. They just cut into the hull of the ship. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed it was only 11, to be completely honest with you. Now, while you could say that's just a statistic, the episode would have been bogged down by taking the time to show the personal perspective of the 11 crew member and their horrible death. Although, that's an interesting story idea. Follow a story from the perspective of one of those 11 people leading up to and concluding with the attack on the Enterprise and their death. Anyways, so that works for me. And after the four minutes of action, Picard, who is, of course, you know, smart, is like, take us here, warp nine, let's go. Uh, after four minutes of action, there is a, a several scenes of quiet which allow for the impact of loss. And notice how Picard's strategy is to tank the situation. I should explain what I mean by that. When I say tank, because there's three definitions of that damn word, because this is English, what I mean is he is pulling aggro. 
on the Borg ship. He is making sure that they are focused on him and his ship to distract them away from the rest. Remember, one of the biggest things that their goal is here to do is not to stop the cube, which they don't even think is possible, but to delay it so that the fleet can show up and deal with the cube. They've got a sheep fleet coming of like 39 ships or something that, you know, is not here yet and will not be here for some time. So Picard's strategy is extremely sound, and to be perfectly blunt, one of the only strategies he could have made. It, it, to be as fully, completely blunt as I can, if Picard had not chosen this, there's a pretty good chance that, well, that would have been the end of the Enterprise D. Just, bam, it's over. Because they'd lost, and that's the point. Their first encounter with the Borg, and they were woefully, dreadfully unprepared for it. And again, it feels significant unlike with the threat of the week, partially because of the fact that this is not a threat of the week, but also because of how much effort the episode has gone into establishing this, presenting this, showcasing this, and the consequences of this. So, this also brings me to my next point. They're, they come up with a strategy by examining the data from the previous battle. Logical. <sighs> Some of you don't fully understand what I mean by the techno-babble problem, so let me put, put it to you this way. I like Voyager. In fact, I would go so far as to say I love Voyager. Sometimes the internet tells me I don't, and the internet is wrong, but I do actually very much love Voyager. One of the things I do not love about Voyager is techno-babble. Indeed, the overuse of techno-babble. In a Voyager episode, and I'm not even going to name one, but I can actually think of one off the top of head, where they were encountering the Borg. Uh, try re-jiggering re the quantum phase matrix of Quantogulin. Okay, it worked, we're out, poof, okay, we managed to solve that dilemma. The worst of Voyager would actually invent technobabble problems to be technobabble solutioned, to, to, to be solved to, with technobabble, which is just nonsense on top of nonsense at that point. Now, that's the definition of technobabble. If you replace the technobabble with basically anything else, it doesn't change anything. That's technobabble. It is literal nonsense. It is something that, and this is not a joke, the script writers can literally write the word tech into the script, and someone else comes in and writes in whatever later on. Now that's significant because it just has to be tech. It doesn't have to be specific tech. It doesn't have to be tech that matches the situation. It doesn't have to be tech that matches the circumstances, or the conditions, or the ships, or the setting, or anything else. It can just be quantum, phasic, multispectric, harmonic rays. It doesn't have to have any meaning. By contrast, in this episode, and a lot of TNG up to this point in time, really, they get to look at a situation where they read the data from the previous battle. Notice that there was an extremely minor dip in overall Borg cube output of power when they hit a specific frequency in the phasers when they were desperately trying to break free. Noticing this, they then theorize that this, again, this is pure theory, that, that, that this frequency is something that is effectively a, sort of a weak point for the ship. They then think that if they were able to hammer that exact frequency with enough sufficient throughput, enough energy in one moment on that frequency, they could do real actual damage to the cube, which is something that hasn't even been on the table up until this point in time. But again, this isn't an easy answer. The only thing the entire ship, this entire galaxy-class heavy cruiser, has that can pull out that kind of push-out, excuse me, that kind of power in one moment, is the deflector dish. And even that has almost no range, and would also destroy the ship in the action of doing so. Now, note that they still consider this an option. They just try to workshop it, try to make some way to make this work, 
without us all dying in the process. None of this is technobabble. All of this makes perfect sense. All of this is logical. It follows the tech of the setting, the tech of the two specific ships, and the tech of the specific scenario. That is awesome. So credit to Pillar and whoever else did the work on this script of this episode. So, uh, we kind of have a little bit of politics coming in again here. Uh, she basically goes around his back to talk to Picard. Now, what's interesting about this is she does so effectively for no reason. She is just trying to prove her, you know, prove herself ambitioning up the corporate ladder, etc. But I mention that because, again, <laughs> her defense of this is you didn't order me not to. That is pretty much the definition of violating the spirit of the law well, while adhering to the litter of the law. But what's more interesting to me is Picard's reaction to it is extremely logical. Keep this in mind as a backup plan. That makes sense. I actually agree with that. Although not for the same reasons. I think there's other reasons why splitting the ship could have come in. But let's not get into the tactics of versus the Borg here. Although I could. <laughs> but what's most interesting is that both of them once again have a point. There is a wonderful scene, which I've already kind of covered briefly, where Shelby and Riker confront each other on a turbo lift. And they, Shelby finally drops all pretenses, and so does Riker. She flat out says, you're in my way. This is a serious situation. We need to take risks. And he flat out says, you're right. I am in your way. And when, I, when it comes to this ship and this crew, you're damned right I play it safe. Once again, neither of them is really wrong. And neither of them is really right. Instead, we have two conflicting perspectives. And, oh, I just really wish we'd gotten that teamwork. I mean, we do get some of it in these episodes, so that's something. It's just, oh, that would have been awesome. There's a scene where Picard tours the ship. It's a good scene, but what really sells it is he goes into 10 Forward, which is basically abandoned. Of course it is. Everyone's busy right now. Everyone's working. Guinan is there, sitting quietly in a corner in the dark. Try to picture Guinan's perspective for a moment. This is a woman who has quite literally lost her home to these creatures, to the Borg. And she has obviously terrified of them in her own quietly subdued way. She actually, wonderful credit Whoopi Goldberg, the woman shows tremendous terror in her in this entire scene. She really does. Even as she speaks of hope, even as she speaks that as long as at least one survives, you can see that there's just fear in the back of her eyes. And she mentions, you know, a helpless battle. And then she talks about, you know, this isn't the end. As long as you survive, as long as one person survives, then you will prevail. And then the bombardment starts. But I have to talk about one other thing about that scene. I've talked about this before, and I will talk about this again. This was a pinnacle point in Star Trek history, in character and out. This was the end of the, this is the official end of the golden era, the, the winds of change era of the Federation. This is when they got smashed in the face by a foe they could not reason with, and they could not reckon with, that the only possible action was to fight back and destroy. I have said many times before, and some people have disagreed with me on this, that the only reason that Starfleet was capable of doing what it could against the Dominion was because of the battle that's going to happen at the beginning of the next episode. This is also arguably the biggest loss that Starfleet has had to date, ever. They would have more significant losses later, but up until this point. And 
they had never shown this kind of threat before in Star Trek. And this kind of threat had never really had this much impact in Star Trek. For all those threats of the weak, those threats of the weak are usually defeated in the weak, and then you move on. They're tech-teched around, or they're diplomatized around, or some way they, they work their way out of the situation. Some good, some bad. They do eventually defeat the Borg, but let's be honest with ourselves, the Borg won this encounter. And that breaks Picard's line all the more fascinating. Did he really know, as the Visigoths were, were tra crossing the river, which I can't remember the name of right now, that this was the end of the Roman Empire? The second, no, third Roman Empire, sorry. Or maybe it is the second, I don't know, there's like seven. Maybe this is just another page in our own history. Turn the page. There is something really appropriate about that, because I don't think Pillar knew when he wrote those lines how much this was in impact history. Because as I say, this is a big thing in character. But this is also a huge thing out of character. Like I said, Star Trek exploded. TNG, in specific, to be more clear, exploded into popular, into popular parlance, into normal media and normal thing. People now became aware of Picard and Data and the Enterprise D and the Borg. These were now things that everyone was cognizant of. And it allowed for more interest, which allowed for things to happen in the future, like Deep Space Nine and Voyager and Enterprise. It allowed for projects and continued development, uh, continued budget, which allowed for different kind of things to happen. The Dominion War probably would have never even existed out of character in real life if not for the significance of Best of Both Worlds, Part 1. So once again we talk about the ever-advancing wall. As Q himself so wonderfully put it back in Q-Who, they don't tire, they won't stop, they have no interest in any kind of diplomacy. All they're going to do is move forward until they have what they want, and then they'll move on. The ever-advancing wall has now managed to outmaneuver their hiding in the nebula and is now ready to come at them full tilt, forcing them out of the nebula. And then, and this is wonderful, three drones effectively defeat the Enterprise. Now again, the Borg take what they want and then they leave, and all they wanted was Picard. I just point that out because if not for that... <laughs> That would have been the uh, the end of the Enterprise, again, right then and there. A Borg drone on the bridge of the Enterprise? No, that's game, right there. But they didn't care. They wanted Picard, and then they moved on. We should talk briefly about this, but before I do, I just want to mention that the second they get Picard, they set, they set destination at maximum warp towards Earth. And I point that out because that's so wonderfully robotic, isn't it? It's one, of the, it's one of the things that adds to the flavor of the Borg. The level of cold efficiency. Now, when I say efficiency, it is also something that's usually written as one of their biggest weaknesses. That's why they sent only a single cube, after all. And why they only sent one drone over, and then a second, and then a third. I say three drones, but actually they each came individually. Because that's just the Borg way. This is, they will ex expand exactly as much pressure as needed to move their obstacle and no more. And if that fails, they'll expend more. If that fails, they'll expend more. And they'll keep escalating forever, because they're the frickin' board. So they just... straight to Earth. They, they bring Picard in front of the Borg Collective, and a lot of things that become normal parlance for the Borg are said. You know, resistance is futile. But the one line that really stuck with me is, death is irrelevant. Something about that line really resonated with me. Because, to me, it kind of helped emphasize Borg mentality. 
After all, why would the collective care about the death of a drone? Right? How often do you weep at the loss of individual skin cells? Right? <clears throat> so, there's a nice scene where they mention that they can only keep up. I've actually already referenced this. They mentioned that they can only keep up with the ship for, I actually wrote it down, two hours, 40 minutes, and three seconds before the, before the Enterprise just can't do it anymore, before it shuts down as it overwhelms itself. Again, helping to show the significance of how hard it's costing the Enterprise just to even keep up with their phone, never mind actually damaging them. They manage to beam over the crew. This is where that wonderful scene happens where Riker realizes he's not the commander anymore and has to switch to being the captain. Once again, by the way, showing that Shelby is right and besting him at his own game, while I'm on the subject. Then they go to the Borg ship. <laughs> Funny thing, I was actually looking for a good audio sample of the standard Borg noise, you know, that kind of thing they've got going on. I couldn't find a good sample. I found a few samples, but nothing good, nothing I felt was workable, which I felt was a shame. I would love, to, if they offered that for sale, I would buy the hell out of that, because I, I have a lot of uses I could have for that. I thought about having that play with the new background. This is a brand new background, by the way, just for this one. Hope you like it. It took a little bit to get, to get it going together. So they're on the Borg ship. And they mentioned that the fleet's going to try and intercept the Borg cube at Wolf 359, which is actually a real star. We'll talk more about that next week. So they go over to the ship, and they're trying to find Picard. Obviously, the Borg are ignoring them because of that whole efficiency thing I mentioned. After all, you don't care about something unless it's actually a threat to you if all you care about is what you care about and threats to you. I know that sounds self-repeating, but you get my point. I did mention I critique this episode. Why'd they keep his uniform? They just have his uniform in some random drawer. Why? <laughs> I mean, I get the point out of character, but it seems so weird for the Borg to keep around a Starfleet uniform for what is effectively no reason. Although, given what the, the Queen wanted to do with Locutus, I mean... Anyways. <clears throat> I also uh, noticed that... So they t they bring in and they mention that they have a way to use the deflector to do the super death doom cannon. And I like how, once again, they're showing consequence and cost. That this is not something that they can just do and rewire and uh, bounce the beam off the deflector fish and into the particle deflector. You know, they can't just do that. They're going to have to evacuate multiple decks, which Troy goes off to do, because that's, that's a job that's actually good for her. Not sure why they didn't do that in Star Trek Seven, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, so she goes off to help evacuate these decks. They're going to blow out half the relays, and they're going to do untold amount of damage to several parts of the ship, including the deflector ray itself. But they can make this happen without destroying the ship. But I mention this again because it, it once again shows how much this is costing them to do this. This is their one shot, and they're not even sure how well it's going to work. And the best they can do is something that will basically blow off their own arm in order to punch the enemy, right? Okay, I'm with it. I like it. Then we see Locutus of Borg. Would you like to buy a Pontiac? I'm sorry, that's an inside joke. Some of you will get that. Let's talk about Locutus briefly. We'll talk about him a little bit more next episode, but I think one thing really needs to be mentioned, and that's the idea of the Queen Bee. Now, obviously, the Borg queens had not been invented yet by this point in history. That's something that would come along much later in the, epi uh, in the episode, excuse me, in the movie First Contact in Star Trek VIII. That's the first time the concept of the queen bee 
the Borg Queens, was actually brought into continuity and would later be used in Voyager as well. Now, I've spoken for and against the very concept of the Queens before, and I, I don't want to recover that ground here. But I do want to mention that the reason they eventually came up with the Borg Queens is exactly the same reason that Locutus was a thing, because the executives, and it's worth noting, I've, I've done every research and all of, I've got three books, two magazines, and, and everything online, and I couldn't find any specifics on this, this exact matter. I spent almost this entire morning just researching this episode. And I could not find who was pushing for the Queen Bee idea. Like, was it Berman? Because he was basically the executive in charge of TNG at this point in time. He had functionally taken over the show from, you know, as far as the financial, uh, corporate, you know, executive side of things. But uh, there's no specific reference to Berman anywhere, so I have no idea if he was involved in that. I know Berman was involved in family, but we'll get there in a couple weeks. Instead, all it is is just several people, including Pillar, of course, who were saying the executives kept pushing for the idea of no, we can't relate to the Borg. There's nothing for the other. The Borg are boring because there's no individuals who you can interact with or focus on. And um, I have to say that's actually one of the stupidest things I've heard in Star Trek, and that's damned impressive. I am one of those people who, like Michael Pillar, who agrees with me on this, actually, that one of the most interesting things about the Borg is the very nature of their composition. The fact that the Borg are the collective, that that's the Borg that there's no group of people, there's no culture per se, there's no individuals per se, there's no entities per se. One of the most fascinating and engaging aspects of the Borg is their nature. To try and have a queen bee, either Locutus or the later queens, takes away from that in my opinion. However, Pillar decided to go ahead and, and in a way cave to these ideas by going ahead and having the queen bee be Picard. Picard is taken and assimilated by the Borg and turned into a mouthpiece. The Borg even justify this. Your primitive cultures utilize, uh, I, I forget, like authoritarian-based structure. Therefore, you will be the individual that will speak for us. Okay. That's not a terrible idea. It could have certainly been worse. And it does give us a lot of good potential for the next episode. But I point that out because, again, the next episode wasn't written yet. It's going to be important. Keep it in the back of your mind. So Locutus is taken, and there's this great bit, there's actually a bit where you actually hear just a few seconds of Picard's theme, immediately overwhelmed by the action music, which immediately goes into the, basically the We Have Failed Strings Quartet. And what I, what I love best is nobody can really say exactly what's going on. It is Worf who has to say, he is a Borg! And credit again to Michael Dorn. The man managed to make it very clear just how much this has impacted him, just how much this bothers him. Then Locutus has his big entrance. I am Locutus of Borg. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. And then everything that the entire episode has been building up, from the very beginning, all about Riker, about whether or not he should be where he is, whether or not he should try to strive forward, Maybe he's settling. Maybe he's unsure. Maybe he's happy. Maybe it's a good thing to be here. Maybe I'm not sure what I really want. All these variables. He stands up knowing the full consequence of what will happen, whether he does or does not do. Understanding the significance of the scenario and the significance of the cost and the consequence. Mr. Worf. Fire. Now, I originally wanted to cut off the rumination right there. 
but I want to share something. Anybody who's watched this in the, the new Blu-rays knows that Mr. War of Fire immediately cuts to the next scene, the first scene from episode, you know, part two, season four. I know that that's technically better, but it takes so much of the impact out of that moment. Remember the mindset of when this episode went live, which actually I don't remember the exact date. It was June 18th, 1990. June 18th, 1990. People didn't know where this was going. People didn't know if Picard was going to live or die. People didn't know what they were going to do with Riker or with Shelby. People were going rampant trying to figure out, oh my God, what's happening next? And while there have been some interesting and good cliffhangers over the years, none has ever impacted me as much as this one. I know that sounds so stupid, but I watched this episode when it came out with my mom, 1990. I remember which apartment we were in at the time, and I'm sitting there. Uh, I, w I actually had my own chair at this point in history. I was no longer sitting on the ground, leaning up against her uh, lean uh, easy. And I'm sitting there, and it goes, and just cuts to credits. And I'm just like, and mom, I remember because mom's reaction was, what? Like, full volume. What? You've got to be kidding me. The impact of that cliffhammer cannot be understated. It still gives me goosebumps to this very day. In fact, when I was watching the Blu-ray for this episode, I paused it as soon as it did the cutover, went to YouTube, and watched the original version really quick, because you can pull up, like, the three-minute cliffhanger there on, on YouTube, because I didn't want to dig out my DVDs. It was a unique point in Star Trek history and in many ways in television history. Not, not as significant as other cliffhangers. I mean, obviously, you know, Denver, or Denver? Was that the name of the episode? Or the name of the show? Oh, God, I can't think of it. The Oil Guy, right? You know what I'm talking about. Um, Simpsons obviously had their big cliffhanger as well. But while there have been many good cliffhangers before and since, this one just kind of really resonated with me and my friends and my family and people I know. I, again, I, I can't speak for the entire world because I don't know everything in the entire universe. I know, shocking. But seeing that fade to black, it was one of the longest three months of my life. I'm not even kidding. It's actually one of the reasons why nowadays I tend to not get into shows until they're already done because I don't want to go through that three-month junk of just, what? Again, because I know things still do that. Games still do that. Shows still do that. Breaking Bad did that at least once, for example. But I also mention this because not only was it a brave thing to do, but it was also an extremely foolhardy thing to do. And the best part is none of it was done deliberately. It's not like Pillar and the creators sat down and said, let's do this big cliffhanger to generate interest. No, they just did it, and they cut it off, and then the world lit on fire in reaction to this. We will discuss more of the impact, consequence, and development of the second part episode next week. I hope you've enjoyed, guys. I will see you next time.